Welcome back to Creator Talks, and if you're new, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. On this episode, we are talking with writer Dwayne Swinski. Now, he has written many comic books for many different publishers. I'll mention some of them here in the opening. Moon Knight Annual 1, Punisher Force of Nature, The Immortal Iron Fist, X-Men, The Times and Life of Lucas Bishop, Deadpool, Birds of Prey, and among my favorites, Bloodshot for Valiant and X for Dark Horse Comics. He's also written Judge Dredd, The Harbinger Wars, and what we're going to talk about on this episode is The Black Hood, the Bullets Kiss trade paperback for Archie Comics. Now, to be more specific, that is the Dark Circle imprint of Archie Comics. Archie's branched out in some more mature lines of comic books, including Dark Circle Comics and Archie Horror, which includes Afterlife with Archie and Sabrina under that imprint. Now, Dwayne and I are going to focus on The Black Hood, which is under the Dark Circle imprint of Archie Comics. And we're going to talk about the collected edition of the first arc, The Bullet's Kiss, which is coming out in trade paperback in bookstores. It's already available in comic book shops everywhere. We're also going to talk about Dwayne's novel writing. He writes a lot of crime novels. He's also written some uh, self-help books and even a dummy's guide. So we're going to delve into that a little bit. I'm not going to review his whole resume. You can read this stuff online about what he's written, comic-related and non-comic-related, but I do want to understand more about him as a writer, so I'll be touching upon some of those books that you might want to check out besides his comic book work. All right, then. Let's get started without further ado. Dwayne Swinski on The Black Hood, here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creative Talks. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, I don't think we've ever met before or spoken. At least those are going to be my opening remarks. And as I was gathering together my Black Hood comic books, the first one says, to Chris, and you signed it. And I'm like, wow, where do we meet? <laughs> did we meet? <laughs> That's so weird. I mean, I when I first started doing the Black Hood, I did maybe a few signings in the area, in the Philly area, but I can't remember when it might have been. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's bizarre. Either I saw you at the comic book shop in Delaware, or you were there, hmm. and they had it signed for me since I wasn't there at the time. Because sometimes they'll do that. Like, we'll get a copy signed for you because I have two copies. I have the Frank Avila cover, and then I have the Gatos cover that you signed. So I wonder if you were ever in Wilmington for a signing when you first started. Oh, yeah. That, that's that's very possible. I, was, I did a signing at a, a Stereotitis' shop back in the day uh, a few years ago. That's, that's where what I happened. Shot. Okay. Okay. I was there with my kids, so if you were there, it was me and like two preteens at the time, who were uh, having having fun, just you know, sitting there watching Dad be a fool of himself. So <laughs> that may have happened, but <laughs> well, cool. We we sort of kind of met, I guess, sort of. So, so yeah, so you you know you worked on Black Hood, and you've also worked on Bloodshot, one of my favorite Valiant characters, and breathed some new life into that one, which shows was needed. Oh, nice. Yeah, and of course, X for Dark Horse brought that one back from the '90s and. Did a lot right. of good with it, you know. I really, I really enjoyed it. And what's interesting about both the Black Hood and uh, X is that the city that the character is in is a very big part of it. Like they are part of the environment. They wouldn't be the same without being in their element. And that seems to be a common thread right. in both X and in the Black Hood. Absolutely, Black Hood is obviously it's Philadelphia. It's very clear about that. X actually modeled on Camden, New Jersey. Like I sort of pictured a version of you know Arcadia as Camden, you know. City has a proud history, but it's just been beset by you know outside forces to conspire against its citizens. So I kind of wanted a really scrappy, desperate, violent vigilante 
who would try to take back his city and he takes things very personally. I was just, I mean, I, at the time I was reading a lot of, you know, stories that were coming out of Camden right across the river from Philly, you know, where I was, but things like closing down the police force, you know, like what <laughs> that shouldn't happen, you know? Um, so that was a big inspiration. Uh, so yeah, I'm very much about place. You know, I'm glad you, glad you saw that in the books. Before those or concurrent with those, you've written several crime novels and some nonfiction work too. And I, I guess given the choice, you'd rather write novels versus comics just because it's your own sandbox. You can do whatever you want. You're not tied into a particular character's back history or a property right. owned by someone else. Yeah, I mean, novels, you're God. Um, and in comics, you're sort of you're a, you're a demigod. You're like, you know, like <laughs> you set things up and the artist is your collaborator. But yeah, yeah, editors to please. And you have, of course, you know, readers to please. And if it's a character that's exist, has already existed, yeah, you have backstory. You have, and I wrote Cable for, for Marvel for a while. And talk about backstory. I mean, that was <laughs> the question was what not to include. Um, so I, recently, though, it's been fun to kind of do sort of blank slate characters like Black Hood. I was told to just reinvent him, you know, and honor, I guess, you know, the, the past, but don't feel any, you know, any need to, you know, be a slave to it. In other words, you know, and X, same thing. It was sort of, you know, we have this continuity, but do your own thing with it. Um, so that's been kind of refreshing. I really haven't had to um, have that kind of continuity nightmare stuff in a long time. Well, a couple of the books you've written outside of comics, I just wanted to ask you about these because I was surprised and very pleased to see them, and I want to check them out. You did. This goes back a ways, I know, but I'm sure. just curious. The Big Book of Beer? Big Book oh, O-Beer. Yeah. O-Beer. Everything you ever <laughs> wanted to know about the greatest beverage on earth. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, like before that was the uh, the big book of cocktails. No, sorry, the perfect drink for every occasion. That was, uh, it was the beer book was sort of a off this a weird sequel to that. Yeah. No, the, the the whole title people have to hear this is the perfect drink for every occasion. Uh, cocktails that will freshen your breath, impress a hot date, cure hangovers, and more. Yeah, and that started as a a failed magazine pitch. I was I was a, a freelance writer at the time. And I was, I, I'd come from men's magazines. I'd worked for men's health and details for a couple of years as, as an editor. And I was just you know, pitching ideas. And that was one idea no one ever kind of picked up. And, and, and I said, well, that's a little weird. I'm like, all right, well, I pitched it as a book uh, over drinks, oddly enough. <laughs> and then I knew it at QuirkBooks. And they were really fascinated by it. Uh, at the time, QuirkBooks was famous for the worst case scenario series. You know, they had a lot of those. And this is long before they did fiction. And they're looking for, you know, other, other kinds of, you know, offbeat uh, kind of, you know, useful books and that kind of, uh, amused them. So that's how that happened. You know, when in doubt, fail upward, you know, <laughs> pitch a piece, you know? <laughs> go for the book. Oh yeah. People love to read about alcohol yeah. and wine and, and not yeah. just like a ratings book, but you go through and cover lots of history and other things in there as well. It looks like it reminds me there was a, a book that came out in the nineties and it was written by Michael Jackson, not the pop singer. Uh, he wrote a book right. about beer. Right, a beer expert, yeah. Do you remember seeing that? It used to be on PBS. I do, oh yeah. Yeah, he did a, a bunch of books. He's a world-renowned beer expert. Um, I'm not sure I saw the series, the TV series, but, but um, yeah, he was. he's one of the, the greats. Or was, much. is he still with us? I don't, I don't know. I don't believe Apologies he is. Mr. Jackson. I think he passed okay. on a while ago. But uh, yeah, I think uh, there was like a short series on PBS, and it was like one of their perks, like, you know, uh, pledge and you can get the book and somewhere i think i still have his book this little thin book of beer ratings <laughs> wow it must be so out of, out of date it'd be I mean, it'd be had an explosion I, mean, I, I wrote the book i mean when i was writing the book you know craft brews were still 
you know, newish enough to feel like, oh, this is something different. Now it's everywhere, every place. You know, this is wonderful. It's uh, so much like too much good beer everywhere. So that's my book's if my book's way out of date. <laughs> it's kind of sad. It's an heirloom. <laughs> now a couple other books you wrote, and I thought these were amazing too. The Complete Dummies Guide to Frauds, Scams, and Cons. And not comic cons, but just real con jobs. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Um, that was, you know, a lot of fun. I had an editor I was working with, Gary Goldstein, and he just he was famous for sort of like calling up and saying, or emailing and saying, hey, I need a book on, you know, frauds and, and con games. I like, that sounds great. I need it in three months. Sounds great, Gary. <laughs> so I would crash, you know, and, and just try to, you know, re- I researched for, you know, a month straight and then start writing for two months while still researching, you know, along the way as well. So it was a, it was a sprint. I did that book. And a book about bank robbery in the same way. It was like, I need it in three months. Um, so I just did a crash course and, you know, just research as much as I could. And then, yeah, I wrote under very tight deadlines. I was just wondering, like, did you ever have an experience where someone tried to scam you? And was that some of the inspiration for writing some of the content in the book? Um, at the time, no. Uh, since then, sure. <laughs> uh, friends and family have been victims of identity theft and all that nonsense. But I, I, I kind of approached it as a fan of, con men in general, con man movies, um, con men in fiction, you know, just the psychology of a character who thinks he can outsmart everybody else and live by his or her wits. That just, that was the appeal to me, you know. It wasn't that a burning sense of revenge, you know. It was more of a, huh, you know, thinking con men and like bank robbers are maybe um, the more noble of criminals because they don't usually kill or aren't usually violent. You know, they typically, uh, bank robbers especially, they want to go after, you know, institutions, not so much, you know, Joe and Martha Sixpack down at the local, you know, bank branch. They want to hurt the big, the band, which is sort of admirable in a way. Right. So that's where right. it came from. <laughs> and then another one you did was Spy's Guide to Office Espionage. Adventure career. Right. I guess that was kind of tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> I hope. Um, it's funny. Uh, that, was, that, that was quirk. And my co-author uh, had worked in that world. I was more of just a, a writer to put it into shape, you know, add some jokes, make, you know, give it structure. I mean... All the material came from him. I have no first-hand knowledge of, of spycraft. Okay. Or do I? I, I can't tell. No, <laughs> okay. I don't know. I don't. But what's funny is all those nonfiction books kind of set the stage for my later novels. They all kind of tied into, like, I use that same material in a lot of ways for later books. Like the spy uh, stuff I used in a book called Severance Package about spies in Philadelphia. So all of it, I, I waste nothing. I'm like a goat. I use everything, you know. Um, <laughs> no part left unconsumed. <laughs> Or unused. <laughs> now, I think your most recent crime novel was that Revolver that was out last year. Yes. Okay. That was that, last summer. Yes. And that was set in Philly back in 1965. Um, actually, three time periods: it's 65, uh, 95, and 2015. Right. Three generations. So kind of, it's three parallel tracks. Yeah. Which was a headache, but a lot of fun to do. I mean, I'm fascinated by how things either change a lot or don't change at all, you know, especially a town like Philadelphia, which you, you know, it's right, right above you there. Um, there are some things that haven't changed in like a hundred years and some things are just gone in a, in a blink. So I, I just, to me, the, the whole temporal possibilities were a lot of fun with that book. I guess you can draw from some of your own research and study because you actually had a relative who was a beat police officer and he was gunned down by gangsters in 1919. Well, I actually I met with um, a cousin of mine. That was his great-grandfather who had, who had been killed. Um, about, it's a street corner in South Philly, right where the Italian market begins, you know, where Rocky ran down the Italian market with the, burn, the burning trash fires. There used to be a bar at the corner 
so nice and Christian. Um, now it's the pizza place. Um, but he was chasing some gangsters around and, and ran in, and then he was gunned down and bled out on the entranceway. And the weird thing is, the tiled floor, the entranceway, is the same tile that it was when it was at the bar. So uh, we actually went there and touched the actual place where he, he bled out and died, wow. this ancestor of ours. Yeah, and it kind of, uh, it's a whole, it, it kind of, I got lost in my research. That I didn't really use much of it for the novel. It was more about just curious about what happened and what life was like at the time. You know, you think it's uh, South Philly, you think Italian families, and that's true. But there was actually a big Polish enclave, you know, a few blocks away down by um, close to the, the waterfront, and that's where my family is from. You know, my two great grandfathers grew up like nine blocks apart, never met. You know, later there, you know, their kids would you know meet up and uh, and marry. So it was just a, it's a fascinating thing to me about how how cities work, and you know, how immigrants come to a certain place and find their fellow immigrants and work in certain industries and you know and clash. You know, that was a big deal uh, back then. You you wouldn't have Polish say and Italian families mingling so much. Um, so that was neat. It's interesting to me how things have changed a lot, but also not so much. We still clash. You know, this country still clashes a lot over things. Um, a lot of things are kind of silly. And maybe in 50 years, we'll see that as silly, too, you know, what we're fighting over now. So um, that's a long-winded answer for your very good question. But I fall down rabbit holes when I start digging into something. And uh, I'll probably come back to the story at some point and write more about, you know, what happened to the, my ancestor. You know, a lot of your stories have taken place in Philly. I mean, Revolver did, and so does uh, The Black Hood. And I guess that's something you know really well, and you can infuse it with a lot of realism because it's your hometown. I'm wondering, right. why did you decide to leave Philly? Uh, I lost a bit. And I, no, I'm kidding. I, um, I, <laughs> just kidding. Um, no, I, I've lived in Philly most of my life and love it and also love and hate it. I mean, I, I hate sort of what goes the best, I mean, the things that go wrong. Where he, we had a, our DA was just, you know, fired and he's under he's on, on trial. That's just not good. You know, there's a lot of corruption, a lot of you know things that can be so much better. Um, and, but the honest answer is, I came out to LA just to to do work in film and TV. You know, it's easier. You really have to be here to be in those meetings and pitch ideas. And uh, I've always loved it out here and wanted to change the pace. So we decided, my family and you know, and I picked up and moved last summer. Was that a big family discussion? Yeah. Was there a lot of resistance to that? Or was it like, yeah, well, that's what you got to do? It was kind of like an eight-year eight year conversation because like at various times, my wife was on board and not so much on board. My kids loved the idea and they hated the idea. So it was the, the stars all aligned kind of last spring. We thought, you know, we should try to do this now before we, you know, it's 10 years from now and we regret having not done it. That's the worst. At least if we try it and it doesn't work out, you know, I feel like always have to have us back, I hope. But... um yeah, I, it was a time to try. I'd rather you know try and fail huge than not go at all. That's right. Life's short. No regrets. Go for it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We've had the same conversation here. I mean, I like it here, and I know it would probably be impossible for me to move, but I'm like, you know, if we really like it out west, we should just go out west. But, you know, like all the families here. You Is know? that a real conversation? Okay. Yeah, I, all my family's still back at home, too, back in Philly. And, you know, um, are you a native Delaware Yes. Or you? I've always lived here. I've, I worked. I went to school up in Philly. Um, I went to St. Joe's for college, and then I spent a little bit of time in graduate school at Drexel. So I used to. I stayed out in West Philly oh, yeah, for a okay. little while. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a little. You know, it's a little nerve wracking. But again, I don't see this as a permanent thing. And I think it's, it's it's a phase. You know, we'll see what happens where life goes. But I do love it out here. There's, there's things you know that you don't get so much back in Philly. Uh, a lot of movie screenings. They have a lot of revival houses here. I've been having my sort of cheap 
um, film education <laughs> out here. I, mean, I would go to, I'd go to the, it's place called the New Beverly, which uh, Quentin Tarantino owns the theater. And every night he has a double feature for eight bucks. Go see two movies, you know, um, that are either great or pulpy or bizarre. He, you know, so much great stuff he digs up or his staff digs up. Oh, that so, sounds that's like fun. super cool. That sounds great. Yeah. Get around here. We'll go. I'll take you to a New Beverly screening. It's a lot of fun. So um, let's talk a bit about Black Hood. I want to give that its due spotlight, since that's what we're sure. here for. You have a trade coming out <laughs> soon. Actually, I think it's out in comic shops now. I think it's going to be coming out in bookstores so. uh, in the next week or so. Uh, the Bullet's Kiss, Volume 1. It collects uh, the first uh, six issues of the run. And that's with uh, Michael Gatos, does the uh, artwork on that, and he also does the artwork on Alias Now for Marvel. Right, right. Perfect matchup. I really like that a lot. You know, you've infused it with the true crime elements, knowledge of your hometown, and you even managed to weave in the Red Circle version, Thomas Kip Berland of the Black Hood. Right. Um, and it's right. interesting that you picked that one. Or was that was that something that your editor talked to you about, Alex Segarra, or was that something you said, no, this, this seems to make sense. I want to use that version of the Black Hood from the past to tie in. Well, yeah, it's fun. I think we both came to the same um, conclusion. We should use them somehow. Although I, this is a little spoiler, it happens on page two, so it's not really a spoiler. But the old version of Black Hood gets shot in the head <laughs> on page two. I didn't want that kind of connectivity, but also want him off the board for you know, off the board, um, and you know lead us to our new Black Hood pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, that's how I that's why I treat you know revered comic book heroes. I shoot them in the face as soon as possible. <laughs> that was a shocking start to the book. <laughs> Very different from the other versions of the Black Hood. And this, this goes back to like 1940, this character. Very different from oh, what yeah, it is in this yeah. book. Uh, this is no, no fancy costumes here. It's just a hood that this guy uses. Yeah, you know, by design, you know, I think um, when I first, first, Alex first approached me, honestly, my reaction was, wait, let me do an Archie superhero? That sounds so not me. You know, I didn't realize that the whole, you know, the, the pulp, a catalog they had all these great characters and so i did a take on it i thought it was pretty you know pretty tough you know kind of um kind of paul schrader you know and this is a really tough kind of kind of storyline and my the feedback was no make it darker i'm like wow really like <laughs> you want to go darker with this and so that's how we ended up with you know our very non-superheroic hero who is a cop a good cop he's a good guy trying to do the right thing who gets shot in the face and hooked on painkillers and has to sort of, you know, get his revenge under a hood because if he didn't wear his hood, everyone would recognize him because he was the guy who was shot in the face. You know, it's kind of hard to hide yourself when you have that kind of facial trauma. So um, for once, you know, the, the, the mask is not meant to hide your identity. It's meant to like, you know, well, actually it is, but it's also not an affectation. You know, he's not, you know, wearing this to be cool or intimidating. He does this to hide his face. And this had a really good run. I mean, this was like, what, 11 issues for the first arc? Not the first arc, but right. like the first volume or first run of it, and then there was a season two that just came out in the past year. Yeah, I mean we have well, three like three arcs total. So this first book volume collects the first the first arc. There's a second arc, um, and then the third one. Yeah, it was called season two, confusingly, but yes. And it was the first Dark Circle comic to come out, and it's the last one to come out for now. Did you get a chance to do right. everything you wanted to do with the character since the series was ending? You know, it's funny, when I, when I first, early, the earliest pitch, I, I mentioned Alex, hey, how about we kill this Black Hood at the end of the issue five and then have it be more of a legacy thing where other characters, you know, other, take on the, the hood. And we thought it was appealing for a while, and we thought, no, let's you know, use him up and really see where he goes because it might feel too sudden, you know, after five issues. 
no one would want to follow this guy. So then my MO became, how far can we push this poor bastard? And how far can we go with this guy? And, you know, that became the, the point of the series. How much trauma and evil can you take? And can you still, at the end of the day, you know, fight some more? So I'm, I'm actually a nice guy in real life. I'm not that sadistic, believe me. But for some reason, I'm like... <laughs> well, I mean, conflict in, is a big part of the book. you got to have that in there. you got to break your characters, you know? Um, sure, absolutely. Now, I heard Alex Segarra, the editor, on another podcast, that there was a return plan of Dark Circle Comics at some point. He has something in the works. And right. I, I know you like to move on to other things and do other projects. I mean, every writer does, every artist does. Do you think sure. possibly you'll come back to this, that that Dark Circle will come back to the Black Hooks? I think it was, in my opinion, my humble opinion, it was the best book of the Dark Circle comics. And I have them all. Do you think you might ever come back? Um, I, I never rolled out because I love working on the character, love working with Alex especially. I think if Alex weren't around to do it, I, I may not do that because he and I had a great partnership. And we both saw the character in the same way exactly. So it was really – he's also a crime writer. Alex is a very talented crime novelist on his own. So – we had a very much a meeting of the minds what this should be. So, yeah, if it came up and Alex was part of it, I would, you know, definitely consider it. Um, I thought there was more more story to tell, honestly, you know. Um, but, you know, uh, comic, you know, the market forces what they are. You have to really, you know, it's hard to keep a book going. You know, even the big the big publishers have a hard time keeping, you know, this, those, those stories going, definitely. There's always a reboot. Now, has Alex so. talked about collecting other issues as volumes volume two volume three with the next story arc and then eventually season two i think it's all if this one does well absolutely so everyone please buy it <laughs> give it a shot or you know tell your friends about it that depends yeah whoever buys this one yeah yeah i think they'll enjoy reading it in one shot no pun intended as you know one one volume <laughs> one i didn't really didn't mean to do it <laughs> in one arc and but one thing that they won't see i guess i mean usually the trades don't include a lot of the back matter is there's, if I recall, in, in the first arc, there's all these true crime stories, crime history. I suppose you right. probably had a lot to do with that, including that. Well, like you said, and Alex, too, was a crime writer. So I would think that both of you are like, hey, let's get that put in the book. Yeah, it's funny. It's Alex's idea completely. I loved it. I mean, I love Ed Brubaker's Criminal, and I, I love the stories, but also I love the, the back matter, his essays he would include. And he's actually still doing that. All of his books kind of have that. So we want to do the same kind of thing, but, you know, focus on, all right, what's like truthfully crime stories. So I did a few and we had other writers, uh, Eric Arnonson did a few, he's another talented crime writer we know. Um, so that was, you know, just to give extra value, you know, I'm not sure anyone noticed it beyond you and me, <laughs> maybe or some other true crime nerds, but um, I, I liked it. I liked having, the, you know, more bang for your buck. I certainly hope so. Yeah, it definitely did give you more bang for your buck, and I enjoyed that as much as the story. I mean, I thought, this is great, you know, because that's the stuff I didn't know about. And uh, well, That's cool. Yeah, I that's mean, it's, it, it's a good reason besides these gorgeous covers, and there were multiple different kinds of covers. I mean, you had Mac working on the cover. Oh, yeah. Was, uh, oh, geez, David Mac and Frank Gavilla. Um, I, later on, uh, I think Greg Smallwood did some of the covers. I mean, it was just really... Right. It was hard to pass up. Like, which one? I don't know which one to get. Sometimes I'll get both. I think for, I think for a while I was getting two copies. I was like, Sarah, put like this version and this version in my box. Just put both in there. Uh, uh, bless yeah, you. That's it was, great. It was, I really enjoyed it. Now, you have studied crime quite a bit, crime stories, crime history. What right. has been the most intriguing story that you've run across about crime that occurred in Philadelphia? Oh, boy. There are so many. I mean um, – one, I just, just, I mean, I clearly couldn't pick a favorite, but one I'm actually reading a book now that may not sound like a crime book, but it's totally a crime book. It's called uh, Sesqui, 
by Thomas Keels. It's a history book about the 1926 sesquicentennial celebration. And that sounds, that's not crime, right? No, it's the biggest heist, you know, corruption thing ever. <laughs> this whole thing, it was, um, you know, crooked politicians really just sort of killed this thing. And actually, it murdered the city. I mean, it, it, Thomas Keels makes the case that because of the rapid corruption, and, you know, it really set fully on its course that it was, you know, um, it previously was on a very much, you know, huge industry, uh, people flocking to Philly. Philly was, was jamming, you know, from 1870, it's 1876 on. And then, you know, 20s, corruption set in, and he makes this great case that these guys really just ruined things. And I, I kind of believe it. And I'm reading this thing kind of angry, like, you sons of, you know, <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of thing. So to me, I, I, to me, it's like those massive, I mean, to me, it's like a James Elroy-ish kind of, sprawling corruption story and i'm sure there's a lot of great stories within that um so i tend to actually i love to read history books to sort of get all you know to find my kind of cool crime stories um or at least ones i enjoy reading about not so much like the i'm not a big fan of the you know more recent uh serial killer you know disgusting sex crime stuff i just whatever i'm more of the operatic grand crime you know (laughs) that goes on in in cities that stuff fascinates me (laughs) I find crime history interesting. Uh, I mean, I haven't read a lot of it, but uh, any kind of crime or mystery story set in a historical period, I find those to be the most interesting. Even even like the fiction, like uh, some of my favorite television shows uh, was like Boardwalk Empire. I love oh, it. Yeah. That was set in the twenties. Yeah. I mean, I, and I was way behind on getting caught up. And I think I finished it like last year. I was way behind, but I was I really enjoyed that series a lot for the acting and the story. And uh, one I just Absolutely. started, I started watching, I don't know if you've seen it, it's uh, BBC, it's um, Ripper Street. It's been out for a while. Oh, no, I haven't. Yeah, I, I haven't just, heard about it, but yeah, I've, watched, I've it. watched it the first season or so. It's all these crimes taking place in that area where Jack the Ripper killed people, but it's not about Jack the Ripper. But it's in the same detective who was investigating Jack the Ripper this, in this fictitious story. A lot of things occurred there. Yeah, so it, it's, it's pretty good. Wow. I, I like it. So, uh yeah, those kind of things. That good. Me. Yeah, you might want to check that out. At least yeah. check out one or two and see what you think. Because uh, yeah, it's, it's like oh, you know you. Netflix free, so you can binge if you want. <laughs> that is always a good thing. Yeah, that's great. Now you've worked as an editor for uh, the Philadelphia City Paper. Um, right. I don't know if you worked as an editor for Philly Mag or if you were just a contributing writer at that point. Um, Actually, I was the research editor. My first job out of college was the fact checker, you know, research editor. And then later became a staff writer, and then years later I returned to be a senior editor. So yeah, I was there for for quite a while over the years. And I was wanted to ask you: is you know, being an editor, you've been writer, you are a writer, and you are an editor as well. Has that made the communication between you and your editors on your books easier in some ways, facilitate things in many ways? Like you and Alex both write about crime, so I think right there that would help you right off the bat. But has that experience right. being an editor made it easier? Oh yeah, I think so. Because I, I, I can see it from both sides. You know, I can see why they're asking for certain changes where maybe if I weren't an editor in the past, I would have gotten all, you know, hot under the collar. <laughs> I'd have like, why do you want to change this? And I'll, I'll say, oh, no, it's a great point. You know, I believe everybody needs an editor. No matter how good you are, you need someone just to look over your shoulder and say, hey, this is where it goes off the rail. You don't see it, but this is serious and that can have connect with people. And I have learned that, you know, editors can spot things that, in fact, if I go back in time and I became an editor again, you know, to do these things, um, I would actually, having been a writer, treat my writers differently because I've learned things about writers, you know, now having done freelance writing for about nine years at this point, you know, how to talk to writers a little better. I thought I was okay at it, I thought back in the day, but I'd be, I would do a better job having had this experience, I think. 
Um, and it's, you know, the biggest lesson is that, you know, editors can always spot where something goes wrong, but usually the writer has to supply the solution. Otherwise, it won't ring true. You know, some editors go too far and say, well, here's what's wrong and do this. And that may work, but often the solution, again, has to come from the writer, I think, to be, to be successful. Oh, I agree. I'd much rather figure it out than have someone change it for me. Then it doesn't look like my work anymore. You know, just kind of exactly. put me on yeah. the right path and let me figure it out. Cause I, well, first of all, I'm going to learn that way. I mean, I always use an editor too. Like if I'm yeah. writing something for um, the local paper here, I have an editor that checks it and gives me feedback. And like the first thing my editor told me was, what you're writing, the first paragraph, why should I give a crap? What do you, you know, why should I read this? You got to get, get that across right away because you don't have much time. People just move on to the next article. I'm like, okay, all right, so why should you care? And then when I would write exactly. something, I, one of my best editors is my executive co-producer, my wife. And uh, I just say, read this because she'll know nothing about comics or about what I'm writing about. I said, does this make any sense to you? Can you follow the story? Right. You know, I mean, I know, don't worry about the punctuation so much. Don't get, don't get worry about that. We'll, we'll fix that. But just does it make any sense? And she'll be very honest and say, uh, you lost me here. You kind of went off the rails here and went on a different subject. It doesn't fit. Yeah. Like, all right. All right. Yeah. I'll reel it in. <laughs> that, uh, that's so important to have. You know, my wife does the same thing for me. She's, she's not a, a fan of comics or even as much of the genres I write in. You know, <laughs> so I saw giving the honest, you know, the honest feedback, like, like your wife sounds like, you know, hey, this is not working for me, you know, and here's why. Um, you're right. It, sh- it should hold stand up, no matter what the reader's background is. You know, good writing should just stand up and be understandable by most people. So, yeah, I think it's helpful to have someone who doesn't know what you're writing about to read it, because they're looking at yeah. it completely fresh, and you're trying to communicate some idea. And if they already have some knowledge of it, they may read things into it that aren't there, and see more than yeah, is there. So yeah, yeah, I just like I like someone who's like knows nothing about it. Or if you're working in a certain genre, even if you even you know certain like you know, genre shorthand, whereas an uh, other reader would not know that at all. You know, like if you're a science fiction fan, there's certain things that, you know, you talk about and most readers are like, what? <laughs> what the hell is FPL? You know, like, you know, fashion and light starship, like what? You know, so that's always good to have someone who's not, you know, part of your own little weird clique <laughs> to read your stuff. Now we've talked around it, but what would you say are the most important qualities and responsibilities of a good editor? Ooh, boy. Good question. I mean, um, the most important thing is helping the, the, re- the writer talk to the reader. You know, I mean, I, I think Stephen King said it best in his book on writing. He thinks writing is basically telepathy. You're trying to transmit information from from one person's brain to another person's brain using code, you know, symbols on a page, which is really weird when you think about it. That's bizarre, you know. But so if one, if you're a writer, the, the one brain sees a certain uh, image, you know, a tablecloth or a, a monster or something or a guy with a gun. Your job is to make that the most clearest transmission into the reader's brain as possible, you know, and they're helping you build that image. So the, the editor's job in all that, I think, is to watch that transmission and make sure it's, like, the best it can be, you know. And sometimes that means taking things out. Um, like, every draft, it should be – I heard the, the second draft is the first draft minus 10%. You want to kind of, you know, carve it to the bone and, and make sure not, there's no useless parts there. So a lot of that, to me, is being a good editor, spotting that stuff. Um, God knows that writers don't always see that. I'm just as guilty as anybody. Revolver actually had a much longer like first section because I fell in love with this uh, the sort of the story of the Philly, Philly riots in the '60s. I went so far into it, my editor had to say, "Whoa, <laughs> he, he's up on that. You can do a whole book on this." Like, and he was so right. I mean, I, I it killed me and got like I don't know ten thousand words, but it was like you know he's right. It'll slow things down, and just because 
I love it doesn't mean that it's right for the book. So, yeah, it's, it's you know primarily as that editor is to sort of make sure that transmission's happening, um, and you know it's also hold the writer's hand to the process, be a sounding board, a psychotherapist perhaps, you know, all of that, and encourage at the right moment and sort of like talk them out of bad ideas or heard you know out of bad ideas every so often. It's a hard job, it really is. Um, I don't I'm not sure I ever want to be an editor again because <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> And I'm used, I'm used to being God. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you talked about uh, cutting you know, that second version gets rid of you know, yeah. X percent of the first one. I remember the yeah. first English class I had in college. Uh, the teacher told us, you're a freshman. You don't know how to write. I'm going to teach you how to write. <laughs> you're going to forget by the time you leave college, but you're going to learn how this year. And the first thing he said right. was, cut out the dead wood. Get rid yep. of all the excess. And I've never forgotten that. So true. The best um, uh, lesson I ever had was actually working at a magazine. I was working for Detailed Magazine. And I have to take these sort of department stories, you know, usually 1,500 words, 2,000 words, and make them fit into the column inches, you know. And you learned how to squeeze every last word out of those things to make them fit because you couldn't let it go. There's no space on the page. You can't, like, you know, it's not like online now where a web story can be as long as it wants to be. But... I learned so much about tightening language. It's not even funny. You know, I, I spent two years doing that just to make things fitter on the ads and such. And that really, uh, pen on paper training was invaluable to me. So, yeah, I hear you saying. Now, you would like to write a couple of novels a year. Are you on pace for that? Is that too much with your other writing for comics? Can you still do that? Oh, when, did I, when did I say I that? Remember reading that <laughs> I remember reading that from an article that you did years ago. So maybe things have changed an awful lot. That was young Dwayne. That was an ambitious, <laughs> stupid Dwayne. Uh, no, I, I'd be happy with a, a book of year. You know, I, I do a lot of different things and I learn as I get older and I'm not, I'm just, I turned 45 this year and no lie. I got to slow down as far as being able to sort of multitask. I used to be able to do like have my day job, write a comic, work on a novel and perhaps even something else at the same time. Um, for a while there, I was doing like, four or five comics a month for Marvel. It was crazy. I mean, the theory where I had five storylines in my head and I'm still writing novels and ghostwriting the none of So that I could do. I learned like the past year or so, I kind of, my, I saw my brain push back on that. It's like, you know what? Do one thing at a time and do it well. <laughs> Don't try to jump around so much. And I've had to learn that, how to slow down a bit. Um, like right now I'm, I'm wrapping up. I, I'm on a screenplay I've been writing for a month or six weeks. And I've had to focus just on that. You know, essentially, um, and it's helped a lot. It keeps me in that world. And then I have a, a, a book to get back to. I, I kind of have a book to finish off uh, next month. So I kind of, I've had you know, uh, very boring this, this the process. But I've had to learn to sort of compartmentalize stuff and do one thing at a time rather than five things at once. Yeah, that's a skill in and of itself. <laughs> to keep yourself yeah. focused on one task, so you don't mess up the other ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you mentioned writing a lot of comic books at one time, five at a time. Do you ever think you'll get a crack at your childhood hero, Spider-Man? You think Dan Slott's oh. <laughs> getting tired now and might step aside, give you a shot? I think Dan Slott is going to hang on that book as long as he can. He's, he's great, so I don't blame him. Um, no, I'm a huge Spidey fan. In fact, I'm going to see Spidey tomorrow morning. My kids, first thing, first show. <laughs> see it because it's um, – but, you know, I almost would hesitate. Even if Marvel called me tomorrow and said, hey, you want to do a you know, Spidey thing? I would probably do it, but I'd be a little nervous about it because I, I love that character so much, you know, there's certain characters that, I don't know, I wouldn't want to do a bad Spidey comic. So I'd be very nervous about doing that. I don't know. You know I mean? It's, it's a weird kind of thing. I mean, there's certain, I, I love the Punisher and I did some Punisher comics, 
and that was like flying close to the sun, you know, like, <laughs> I, I, okay, that was fun. But, um, you know, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, good question. I do love the character though, after all these years. Yeah. I could see something like one of the, what would have been one of the max line of, of comics, like a Spider-Man version of that. And you could have someone like Gatos or Scott do the art on it. Right. Right. Although do you think that Spidey, Spidey fits that max format? I mean, a lot of what he does, like being a teenage humor and being a teenager, and you know, I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm not sure. I'd be. I, I want a, I want a gritty Spider-Man. We've sort of seen that, and I'm not too into that. Okay, so this, this would be something completely different for you if you had a chance to do it. It wouldn't be uh, have that that crime feel to it so much. You want to make it a little yeah. brighter, truer to the character, I guess you could say. What people have grown up with. Exactly. Yeah. I mean. Um, I do love crime. I love dark fiction. Obviously, I mean, I wrote very bloody comics, and my novels are pretty grim. But I don't know. I, I kind of like the idea of doing other things too. You know, I'm not. I'm not going to write a romance novel. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, I, but you know, I do like blending just different, you know, uh, different types of stories. Uh, I'm working on the screenplay. It's kind of part action movie, but it's also part family drama, which is not something you may, you may expect. Uh, but that to me is fascinating how families work or don't work. So. God, I'm getting old, aren't I? That's uh, that's, a, that's an old man. That's an old man's answer. What am I talking about? <laughs> well, where's my walker? Yeah. <laughs> well, now that you're trying to slow down, old man, and focus a little more, <laughs> and I'm not one to talk. When do you find is the best time to read and to write? Is it? Are you like an early morning person that does it, or do you find it's better late in the evening, or? Do you just like block time in your day and like this is what I'm going to do today from nine to five? It is. Yeah, it's it's been the last nine years my nine to five job. It does bleed over into the evening sometimes, or like it's definitely a weekend. I do a lot of work, um, but I tend to think daylight hours are kind of I'm at my best. You know, I want to like you know give the whatever I'm working on my fullest attention. And if the kids are in school and I kind of you know have that time and you know in quiet to do this, that's that's the best. For my first part of my career, I was doing this all at a full-time job. So I come home and have dinner with the family, and then you know they go to bed, and I stay up till midnight or beyond writing. So that I can do it for a while, but that was not a sustainable, you know, <laughs> a sustainable thing. I like having this be my day job. It's the best thing ever. I love what I do. So no, oh, you're so lucky. No, <laughs> you I, I am. I am. I'm serious. I really am. I'm very lucky to do this. It's not. I, mean, I work hard, but it's also not. You know, I don't take it for granted. Uh, that this is one of the coolest things you can do. But a lot of people started out like you. I mean, like you would, you would, as a young man, you did it early in the morning or whenever, or late at night, whenever you had the chance around your day job. Oh yeah. There's, there's no getting around yeah. that. You have to put in that time until you can make it full-time day job. Oh yeah. I mean, it's funny. They say that they think, that, you know, overnight successes usually are 20 years in the making. You know, you, you have to do that. You're working your job and you're kind of writing when you can. I wrote my first novel in the summer of 98 while as an editor of Details Magazine, a very demanding job, was there late often, but every day I'd come home and write at least a thousand words. Um, even if they were gibberish, I had my, my thousand words down to have that habit built. And that's, when, that's the only way I could finish a book because I had a lot of half-started novels over the years. And I learned and realized that, wait, unless I say, you know, write this no matter what, it won't happen ever, you know. So that's, that's what my, my breakthrough, just writing a thousand words a day until it was finished. And you write every day. I mean, I know that you're, you know, it's your I day do. job, but you do have to write every day because you are a writer. And, and actually, I, I do keep my kind of like other plates spinning, not so much for writing a project, but like ideas or things. You know, like yesterday I had a breakthrough on an idea. I've had my head for a year. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of pick at it, you know, in my, in my 
spare time like when I'm walking the dog, I'll think, oh, wait, that's a good plot thing. Or wait, that's a good, kind of cool character moment. So I'm the most like uninteresting person you ever want to meet because I'm, I'm quiet a lot and I walk around and just daydream. And that's just the worst kind of person. You want to punch me probably, you know, it's like, <laughs> I hate that. But <laughs> I'm not, you know, Mr. Mr. Charming in a party, a cocktail party. I'm Mr. Hang near the wall and watch people like a creep kind of guy. So that's, <laughs> that's the truth of it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that's how I, you know, I kind of, but I'm always working, but it's, I don't even think about it as work. It's more of like, you know, active playing, active daydreaming. So that's, that's the secret. My wife loves that. She's just, uh, you know, throw the tears. That's how I am. I'm kidding. Yes. <laughs> She's great. But it's, it's, it's hard to be married to a writer. You know, I, I, I acknowledge that. So I try to be, you know, make it up to her whenever I can. I understand. <laughs> just, I, I do <laughs> yeah, a lot of making yeah. up too for the time I spend doing this. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah you, you understand exactly. Oh, yeah. Passion or you know, project. Someone believing in you, that's, 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 a, that's a huge thing. Yes, yes. Having that support. That's why I often joke, you know, my executive co-producer, because if I didn't have her helping out with the kids, I couldn't do this. It'd be impossible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. How old are your kids? Do you guys have young guys or older? Or? Yeah. Um, my son, well, I have a daughter. She's 23 now. I sometimes I lose track. Okay. Yeah. Now, my, my son, wow. my oldest son is going to be six years next month, and my youngest son is nine months old. Oh, wow. So you have a spread. I have a spread. <laughs> yes. Young ones. That's amazing. Yes. And, That's crazy. And they're here. The two boys are here, and they're quiet. You don't hear anything. That's how great a job my executive wow. producer's doing. <laughs> that is awesome. That I hang, is awesome. I hang my little, uh, it's like those little uh, door hangers you'd see in hotels. Well, mine just says recording <laughs> on my door. <laughs> that, that's good. That's excellent. I put it on the calendar. <laughs> I have a call tonight at 6 o'clock. So if you can just keep it to a dull word at 6. And sometimes like, we're going to go for a walk. You know, like, that's a great idea. <laughs> so. Yep, yep. Very familiar. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, teenagers now, so that's they're a little better about understanding. When they're younger, it was always hard to have it, you know, call an editor when, like, you know, you have mayhem behind you, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> fights and whatever else, screaming. You know, kids just scream for the fun of it. You know that. I mean, oh yeah. Uh, but trying to do a, a serious business call is like, oh no, stop. Well, you know? it's becoming more and more common as more people are working from home. That you hear that yeah. in the background. You hear the, the, the kid. Uh, sometimes you will hear on this podcast a, si- a tiny little cry in the background, a little cameo. And someday I'm going to say, son, that's you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, you saw the, the very funny clip a few months ago of the guy doing an on-air interview with like CNN or somebody. Oh, and yes. His kids ran in behind him. I mean, I, yes. I love that. It's hilarious. It was very charming, you know. <laughs> but you're right. That's most what people do work, you know, from home or um, their workspaces, you know their home space. So I mean, I'm really, I'm talking to you from the, my corner alcove of my bedroom <laughs> where I work, this little corner. I mean, um, I'm not on my, 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 you know, my, my pool deck out here in the Hills. Um, yeah, I can see a palm tree from here. That's, that's about it. That's about as glamorous as it gets. It's still an alcove in my, in my, my bedroom. <laughs> well, you, you talked about ideas coming to you while you're just walking the dog. And that's one of my questions. I asked all my guests, uh, rest and relaxation. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation when you're not at the computer writing, actually doing your nine to five or eight to five job? My biggest hobbies are kind of related. It's sort of lame. I mean, I love going to movies. I love seeing movies in a theater on a screen with a crowd. That to me is like the best thing ever. Um, I like to grill, honestly. Uh, burning flesh over <laughs> fire is awesome because it's not about words, you know? <laughs> I got really into grilling a bunch of years ago because it's so not, you know, what I do. Uh, I never, I'm not a good cook at all. I just, I'm, I'm a very good griller, uh, barbecue, but I'm not, I'm not good at anything else. I can't boil water, you know. Um, 
but that's yeah it, it's uh, ideas do come to me but it's nice having that kind of you know um something different to do with your hands you know uh your brain i guess i'm a big music fan too so that's you know but really i'm a seriously boring person otherwise what kind of music do you like to listen to i was just curious because i got some stuff in the mail today and i was checking it out before our call so what do you like to listen to is it classic rock is it something more modern yeah all, all kinds actually it spreads i mean i listen to i grew up actually playing in my father's wedding and bar band so a lot of it was like doors and stones and beatles like the classic rock certainly i like 50 stuff i do like a lot of jazz i also played like jazz in high school um so yeah up to like i mean those i mean really now i'm listening to actually a lot of twin peaks music now because that's, that's i love the show the, the reboot of the show it's just really fascinating to me but like i listen to like you know radiohead nine inch nails the usual alternative rock stuff um, I do build little playlists for any I write a novel or a comic, so I'll do those just a set mood, you know. And that's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a time waster, but it's fun. You should share um, those in the books. Some people do that now. They'll say this is I, the playlist. Yeah, I, I think I did once. I think I really did. I can't remember which book it was. I thought I did, or I was too afraid and I, I chickened out last minute. But I think <laughs> I, yeah, I have for all of them. I have like something. I, I just saw last week Baby Driver. It's about an amazing fusion of like the ultimate like nerd playlist with. A uh, heist movie. Oh, that was great. I thought it was a, you know, a rare thing, an action musical, you know, <laughs> that I totally got. But yeah, I mean, how about you? What's, what's your, what do you use in certain genres of music or oh, you it, all over? It's, it's all over. I mean, there's classic rock. I mean, you mentioned Nine Inch Nails. I listened to that. I, I just got my uh, Led Zeppelin Houses of the Holy Deluxe Edition today in the mail hear that remastered nice. I like the Beatles of course because it's the 50th anniversary so if you and I mentioned this in the podcast yeah. before if you haven't heard the new remix of the mono turned into stereo and remastered from the original four track tapes it's mind blowing I have and I love it yep yeah I'm a big Beatles fan my, my son actually his middle name is Lennon for you know. oh really that's one of my wife's favorite musicians is John Lennon and I turned her on to all the 70s music yeah. she really likes yeah. the, the George Harrison John Lennon a lot of the stuff the Eagles that kind of stuff because she wasn't really familiar yeah. with that. She listened to a lot of stuff, 90s music, and I, I played that for her, and she's like, this is really good stuff. And then we were watching TV, and they had one of those like Time Life record commercials, not records, but you know, but collections, and they're showing clips of right. the bands back in the 70s, and she's like, oh my God, they look ridiculous. I'm like, <laughs> but the music's still good. <laughs> but she didn't have, she had no idea what like, the stage persona was like. I'm like, oh yeah, that's all part of it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, I, I recently actually, is a, I saw it, I played the um, and Alice Cooper, she's uh, a concert video, Welcome to My Nightmare. It was great. I mean, did the whole, like, I, mean, I was never a huge Cooper fan growing up, but, like, seeing the movie was like, man, that's amazing. The spectacle, the costume, the, the story. It was like, okay, I get it. Um, so I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to appreciate it. There's a certain point, though, I kind of drop off. Like, my son is into something called PC music, which is a lot of, it's very much electronics, but to me it sounds like a toaster being strangled. I can't, I don't, I don't get it. You know, I, I realize I have, I have a point. <laughs> I'm like, i my ride's here. Thank you. Check, please. Yeah, I just can't do it. <laughs> yeah, I reached a point where I realized I'm old because there's a certain point where I just really kind of fell away from what was popular, like probably like around, I don't know, 2005 or so. I just started to drift away and, you know, yeah. I think the last hip thing I listened to was Beck. You know, it's about, I just really have, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the information, I like that album, but I just kind of drifted away from the current stuff and go back to my comfort zone, the stuff that I'm familiar with. There's plenty there. Yeah. There's plenty there. There's decades yep. of great music, so you're never going to be at a loss to find something new. I mean, like you were mentioning Alice Cooper. Uh, yeah. I never listened to Alice right. Cooper when I was a kid. And now with some of these streaming services, you can listen to stuff for free if you have a membership. I've been digging yeah. through it. Oh, yeah. I've been listening to Schools Out. Yeah. I'm like, this is a fantastic album. 
don't you guys know about this? Who knew? Who's this guy? Oh, you're right. I, 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 I belong to Apple Music. I'm always all day on the right. I stream stuff. Just try different things out. It's amazing. Uh, especially soundtracks. That's great. Great writing music. Oh yeah, know. yeah. That's the best ever. But yeah, I, I love deep cuts of things you think you know. It's like George Harrison's a great example. I mean, that's he has some great albums. Just things you don't really hear about beyond those you know couple of hits they always play. So that's been fun dig into that kind of stuff. I, I, I love that about, and for everybody, I love to find deep cuts from novelists, you know, favorite novelists who wrote these sort of more obscure books. I love tracking those down and kind of seeing what, you know, nobody's paying attention to. Uh, that's fun. Uh, I guess comics are the same way. You can like go crazy with a certain series, you know, and dig into it. Um, there's no lack of like depth for us nerds, you know. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. My next question about books. Now, this is my desert island question. You're on an island. You're stuck on an island, okay. no power, no cell phone. You've got one book or a set of books that are all connected in some way. What is the one book you would want to have if you're stuck on an island? Um, how to get off an island and find a bookstore. That's a good choice. That book. <laughs> no, um, that's a tough one. I mean, what, what, what book can I stand to read over and over again forever? Yeah, uh, right. I don't know. That's a tough one. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I'd be tempted to – for a big piece of nonfiction, but even that, after a while, you'd know everything about it, rereading it. Um, I'd have to, God, okay, what, I mean, there are so many options as far as, I'm thinking now, I actually, I had to pare down my book collection moving here. I had a, you know, a stores locker full of books. I just had to get rid of 90% of it. And here now, literally, I have one big bookcase and one little small bookcase. That's my entire collection that's here with me. There's some stuff back in Philly that I couldn't part with, you know, more vintage paperbacks and just things I just couldn't part with. But it was hard making that decision. Like, what do I bring with me? What am I going to want to read out in LA for at least a year? You know? Um, and I kind of narrowed down like whole categories, not so much, you know, one book, but you know, I at least much behind that's an entire genre of stuff I leave behind. So ask me to pick one book, man, that's a tough question. <laughs> that's, that's really tough. Have you gotten answers to this in the past? Like, oh, yes. the answers or, oh, some people oh, are like, geez. bam, right away. They know a book that they read every year. And they'll mention that book, and some people are like that's that's a really cruel question. I I don't I have to pass. I don't know, <laughs> you know. And some people say a comic book, and I think it'd be a comic book. I'm like, yeah, I guess so. On comic books, I can read like in 30 seconds. That's the problem with that. Right. You know, I kind of that's too much too much of a tease. Um, although you know, when I was a kid, when comics were a whole you know, quarter um, or you know 30 cents or something, and you had only a buck to your name, you know. I read those things over and over again. And that's why I remember so vividly these Spider-Man comics from when I was a kid because I just would read the hell out of them and not, you know, I didn't have that big stack, you that, know. That's exactly what, now I have the big stacks and I keep getting reminded about that when I come home with it. But when yeah. I was a kid, no, no, it's like, did you buy all those today? I'm like, yeah. no, somebody did from last week. Um, so I don't right. come home with them in a bag. I, I get into my room really fast. Uh, no, but when I was a kid, I did the same thing. Yep. I was like, uh, I wanted to buy something with my dollar allowance. It was like mid seventies. Yeah. And I would go to the five and 10 store and they had those little pink rubber balls and balsa wood airplanes. And then, you know, they break and right. whatever. Then I discovered comics and they were 25 cents a piece. And I was like, I can get four. And I would, I yeah. would go to my grandparents' house for the weekend. That was a treat for me. And I would read them to death. The first time I'd read it really fast to get to the end of the story and I could find out what happened. Then I would read it again and again and again. <laughs> I still have You're those so books. Right. Yeah. yeah. And they're beat to death, but oh, I still really? have That's them. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, that was the best. I mean, I read the letters column. Like I was fascinated by the oh, yeah. bullpen, all that stuff. I was just I yep. was uh, reading every bit of entertainment out of that book, cover you know, to cover. I could. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
And that's, I guess, it's like, I feel like maybe kids, not to be an old man, but maybe, you know, kids today who have this sort of plethora of options like Netflix, everything, you know, it's streaming this. It's just, you don't know what it's like to have that one thing and obsess over it, you know, and, and focus on it. I think that's how I learned a lot, I think, about storytelling, knowing it so well, um, this one storyline, you know? So that's, that's me kind of lost. I, it's, but then again, I'm an old man, so what do I know? <laughs> well, kids, this has been Creator Talk now. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I walk up my head like, you're sunken, old man, stop it, stop it. Yeah. Another Too question. My, la- my last question of, of rest and relaxation. Now, you've written books on beer and on cocktails. What is your beverage of choice? And I'll even add, if you're going to be reading Black Hood, The Bullet's Kiss, what would you pair that with? <laughs> would it be a Yards Brawler, a Dock Street IPA perhaps? What, what would go well with that? Nicely done. You know, I think actually with Black Hood's case, you definitely have to go to a bar in Philly and order what's called the Citywide Special. Do you know this? The Citywide Special? No. What is that? It's it's a it's a can of uh, Paps Blue Ribbon and a shot of like either Jim Beam or, or Wild Turkey or something like you know whiskey. <laughs> okay. That's like a, it's a, and, a, and it's only maybe it's like three or four bucks or maybe five bucks. I can't remember. It's an agreed upon price that a lot of bars honor. They say give me the Citywide and they'll give you the Citywide. Um, some bars fancy it up and give you like a, you know, an Irish whiskey for your whiskey and maybe a craft brew, but no, no, you want the, 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 the citywide special, I think. And a punch in the face. That's the, that's the Philly special right there. <laughs> Is that your beverage of choice? Do you have one that, I mean, do you no, have one oh, that you... oh, hell no. I, I love that, but it's not that, yeah, that's a black hood. That's not my, that, I, mean, black I, hood, yes, okay. I enjoy that. I've had that. I've enjoyed that much, very, very much, but, um, no, actually I'm more of a, bourbon whiskey guy um i you know if i'm pouring myself i'll just you know do jack on the rocks or if i'm playing expensive you know knob creek on the rocks however i'm out somewhere and they a, a restaurant working made for me nothing better beats like a, a martini made for you um that i learned to love from an editor of mine we just go out for a martini night you know and i mean when you're on your uh, publisher's credit card that's the best <laughs> yeah sure let's do one more you know or, of course, as Dorothy Parker once said, you know, one martini, two martini, three martini, four. So that's <laughs> never a good idea. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty easy that way. Do you plan to go to any cons this year, make any appearances, any store signings? You're going to have time? Um, <laughs> I, yeah, kind of. I, I actually have – I'm doing a thing with Alex out here in a, in a place called Mysterious Galaxy Bookshop uh, down in San Diego. It's right after Comic-Con. I'll be appearing with Alex. He's bringing his own recent novel, and I'm bringing the Black Hood trade, and we're going to just talk about being editor and writer, and I'm sure getting to a fist fight at some point. Um, <laughs> no, he's, Alex is a sweetheart. He's awesome. Um, and then beyond that, I actually was invited to do a, teach a panel on comic book writing in Scotland for a, uh, a literary festival. I'm not sure how I commented into that one. So I'm going to be in the U.K. in, you know, in, in September which is weird. Uh, so if you happen to be there, stop on by. <laughs> have you ever been there before to the UK? I have. I have a very good friend uh, who's from uh, Edinburgh in Scotland, a fellow writer. We've been kind of on each other for over a decade and just got really close by, by sharing writing. And he's a first reader of mine. I read his stuff. Um, Alan Guthrie is his name. Great guy. We couldn't be more different. You know, we're almost like, you know, uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. He's like Simon Pegg, and I'm Nick Frost. We're just this odd couple of people, you know. <laughs> I'm just a early guy, and he's just like wispy little Scott, you know. Um, so that's it's 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 so he, it was thanks to him, it was, the invitation came through him. So that was a lot of fun. I love it over there. It's great. Yeah, it's um, it's. I'm sure at some point I'll set a book 
in Scotland. You know, I have an idea for a, a flesh-eating hero called McCannibal. I think that has a lot of potential. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope someday to get there. I, I, I think when the, the kids get older, someday I'll make it there, I, I hope. We've talked about it. I've had coworkers yeah. that have gone in. I'm like, oh, man. It's, and it's something we talked about before the kids. But I'm like, there's no reason why we can't do it when they get a little older. They're, they're going to really appreciate it, too, and probably remember it. So, someday. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, when we bought our kids from there, they were five and six, you know. So they're young, but they, they, they remember it and can appreciate it. And that was a lot of fun. So definitely, that's a lot of fun. I took my kid on a trip like he was about, oh, 10 months, 11 months old. Well, the first trip, even before that, was just going to a national park in Virginia. And I put him in a baby backpack. Oh, wow. yeah. And, took, and he was just learning to stand up in his crib. And I took him backpacking. And he was fine. And then when he got a little older, we took him to Las Vegas and went hiking out in Death Valley. So, and he That's loved great. it. He oh, wow. loved it. That's fantastic. Yeah, we've done like cross-country trips with our kids in the car and just seeing different things. That's the best. Travel as much as possible. If I have one regret, it's like not tra- not traveling more. You know, within my means over the years. Um, any chance to get, let's go for it. Yeah, I never used to do a whole lot unless it was on business. Uh, and then yeah. when I got yeah. married, my wife's like, "Let's go traveling. Let's go to the Southwest. Let's go to Puerto Rico. Let's go." I'm like, "Okay." I mean, I haven't been out of the country much. You know, just Canada doesn't count to me. <laughs> you know, I haven't been <laughs> right. over. I haven't been overseas, <laughs> but I've traveled the U.S. because there's a lot of places to see that are great and it's not that expensive. And you can take yeah. the whole family, you know? Absolutely. No, that's the best. I've only been overseas, you know, a couple of times in the UK. So I'm not Mr. World Traveler by any stretch, but I love to you know, explore more. Thanks so much for being on the show. You, you've been a great guest. Sure. Thanks, Chris. I've really no, enjoyed you. it. And uh, I wish you the best of luck with your future work and with the sale of the Black Hood Trade, A Bullet's Kiss. People should pick up The Bullet's Kiss. If you haven't picked it up, you passed up on it, pick it up. We want this to come back. Exactly. Thank you so much. All right, and that's my interview with Dwayne Sawinski on The Bullet's Kiss from Dark Circle Comics, an imprint of Archie Comics. I really do miss that line. I look forward to it coming back someday. They had some great characters being brought back from the Archie universe. The Shield, the Fox, the Hangman. Really cool stuff. Much of it going back to the Golden Age, and these were all reinvented for Dark Circle Comics. And the way you can help bring it back is by picking up a copy of The Trade, And, you know, you get to read it all in one shot. You don't have to wait month to month, which is one of the benefits of the trades. I mean, yes, I love to support monthly comics, and I do. But if I miss something and I want to go back and read it, well, on the plus side, one shot, I can read the whole thing, and it's uh, very satisfying. And if you can, help me. It's easy. Rate and review on iTunes or Stitcher. Another great way to support the show is to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, It's all free, and each week, sometimes two, very often it's been two lately, you get a chance to hear an interview with a writer, an artist, an editor from comic books, and get to learn not just about the books, but about them as well, which I find to be the most fascinating things to learn more about the person behind the book. And my guests have had some great insights into writing, drawing, and editing comic books, and those tips can extend into your daily life, whether you work in comic books or not. And if you like to read comic books, well, you certainly can have a much greater appreciation for them after listening to the guests I have on this show. I know you have a lot of entertainment to choose from, and I thank you for making time to listen to this podcast. For Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway. Until next time.